Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Eddie Badrina. Eddie is the CEO of Eden Green Technology, a company using vertical farming technology to change the way we farm our produce and feed our communities. He is a board member at Seed Effect, a micro-lending nonprofit focused on fostering economic stability in the South Sudan and Uganda. Before shifting his primary focus to human service and food security, Eddie was an entrepreneur. He co-founded BuzzShift and served as their president for over 11 years. In today's episode, we learn what a redemptive approach to leading companies can teach us that goes above and beyond a neutral or merely positive company. We learn why your single biggest responsibility as CEO is to integrate the outside of your company with the inside and how to do that by synthesizing information. And finally, we learn why Eddie places a special focus on the knowledge gained from books and spends much of his time sitting, thinking, and condensing his thoughts. This is a great conversation packed with insights into the mind of a high-powered CEO, and I hope you enjoy. Eddie, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ben. Happy to be here. Super excited to be a part of this conversation. Fantastic. Well, I thought we could start somewhere where our listeners may not know about you. They might know a little bit about you professionally, but what they might not know is that you have a playlist on Spotify called Best Rap Playlist of All Time. It's got nearly 12,000 followers, so there's definitely something to it. And so what I want to start by asking you is, what exactly in your mind makes a great rap song? I think there's a combination of both artistry as well as commercial success. If you look through what I consider on my playlist is the best, there's a historicity in it of folks who were meaningful to the early parts of hip hop, like Grandmaster Flash, all the way up to Tupac and Biggie and Jay-Z, and even up to today's, you know, Lil Wayne has, I have one there from Lil Wayne and from Kendrick Lamar. So there's a meaningful artistic contribution, you know, technical contribution to the genre then also what's popular, right? Like uh, Nelly, Nelly had one that was just popular and everyone knows it. You look around like you, one of these songs comes on and if people look at each other and kind of head nod or they, or they lean back and like, oh yeah, this is, this is <laughs> the jam. Then, then you kind of know it should be on that playlist. So those are the two combos that I look at. It's a bit of an art. I try to keep that list down to around 150 and I'll take one out if I feel like something else should pop in, but it it has been a fun thing to keep up with. And I get DMs all the time about like, Hey, have you thought about this song? Right. From people I don't even know, uh, (laughs) they'll find me on Twitter and and they'll say, Hey, have you thought about this song for your playlist? Oh, that's, that's a good idea. So (laughs) it really came about honestly, because I knew all the songs that I loved and I just wanted to hear them all in a row. So I just started putting it together and, and curating it. And I just happened to name it very early on in Spotify as best rap playlist. And, and I think it just caught hold. That's pretty good unintentional SEO you've got going there. What is the thinking behind having a limited number of songs? Because theoretically, if we look at these two angles, you have like the artistic element to it, having quality, and then you have the commercial element to it, what's popular. There could be a pretty exhaustive list of songs, but you choose to cap it at around 150 and selectively filter. What's the thinking behind that? I think as you broaden the number, you really broaden the definition. On a popularity piece, the ones that tend to fall off are the ones that, you know, maybe were hot two or three or four or five years ago, but then they Mm. don't really make the cut all the way back to call it a biggie or a Tupac or even back further to EPMD or an ice cube, right? Some of those have just really stood the test of time. 
And then you've got ones that always flew under the radar, like Madville and MF Doom and uh, guys like Talib Kweli, who they never got the recognition they deserve, but everyone in the industry looks and knows, oh man, that you can't not have that song. You can't not have that artist, you know, not represented on the list. The popularity piece is probably the biggest indicator of what I cut out to the bottom 20%. And the ones that usually drop off the list are the ones that are maybe the more recent ones, recent being one to five years old. There's a, an interesting distinction here going on between the type of the songs you keep and the type of the songs you you cut, which is the popular songs to me seem very ephemeral. By virtue of going on the playlist and being commercially oriented, if they go on the Billboard Top 100, they have a lifespan on them that they're going to exit. But on the other side, these timeless pieces, I think a, a good word for this and some a good segue for us here is that they are sustainable. They stand the test of time. They're able to stay in the playlist. And something that really struck me the last time we spoke is how you view this concept of sustainable and sustainability. So could you explain exactly what sustainable means to you? Because I know you see it slightly differently to a lot of people. Yeah, you know, in our industry, which is, you know, ag tech, vertical farming, greenhouse farming, it falls a lot under what we would call the ESG, environmental sustainability and governance type investing. And when in this ESG type of investing, the word sustainability does get thrown around a lot. And most people, when they think of sustainability, they think of environmental sustainability. And there's value in that. There's absolute value in that. It's long-term thinking about what's going to be the least impactful or the most helpful on the other end to the environment in a long-term perspective. But also there is this idea of economic sustainability. And in business, and when we think of your audience full of business leaders and entrepreneurs and uh, folks who are running companies or having a, being on a team that runs a company, economic sustainability, it doesn't usually come in those words, but everyone's thinking about it, right? And that is profitability. Uh, that's quarter over quarter earnings. That's all of those things. And as a CEO, uh, really what I have to look at is not only environmental sustainability, which is huge for investors, but also economic sustainability. Are we going to be around in five years? Are we going to be around in 10 years? And when you start thinking about economic sustainability in terms of short-term profitability, as well as long-term growth, that lens provides you with a perspective of how to grow the business that I think a lot of people just miss. The real winners are going to be the folks who can make money consistently while being true to their ESG roots being true to their environmental roots and no investor worth their salt is going to invest long-term in an ESG dream or an ESG sustainable, environmentally sustainable model or mission without there being a positive cash flow component. So that's what I look at, right? And I have to look at that in my business. You just don't think about that in terms of economic sustainability. It has other, other terms associated with it profitability, earnings, earnings per share, that type of thing. So when I'm mm. pitching investors, that economic sustainability matters just as much, even more, even if they don't want to say it, it is the foundation for whether they're going to fund me or not. It reminds me a little bit of the WeWork um, fiasco that happened a couple of years ago. And what happened with WeWork, for those who don't know, is they were hyped up to perform a giant IPO, this big office sharing company, largest Lisa in Manhattan of, of real estate space. And they released their S1 where you have to, where your earnings are public and they got destroyed. And they got destroyed because they built up this very fluffy story, but they didn't have a viable economic model underneath it to actually support the business. And it seems like part of this problem is the narrative that ag tech companies might be telling themselves, which is we're going to focus on saving the environment. But actually, if you don't have a business model that can sustain you over the next three, four, five years, it doesn't matter how good your intentions are, then you're not going to get anywhere. So I wonder if, if this is something you've thought about, if anything comes up for you, this 
idea of the narrative that other companies might be using in the space and thinking we have to put environmental sustainability first, but not backing that up with economic sustainability. Do you think that narrative can be a an impacting variable in those cases? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing the narrative play out right now in terms of current valuations of companies. And I'll be the first to say the best tech doesn't necessarily win. He who wins the story wins the day, but there are more than just one day, right? The days keep on going. So I think right now, the folks who are winning the day in terms of story are the folks who are casting a really large vision. And it's a great vision of this environmentally sustainable way of growing that you know may or may not employ a ton of people, but that can provide leafy greens and nutritious produce to everyone. And I've even heard some of them say, hey, we can grow anywhere in the world. All we need is people and power. And my response to that is, okay, that is a great story. That's a great narrative, but it papers over a real, really, really critical question, which is how much power and how many people or lack thereof. So when you start to dig past that really glib statement, you get to some really ugly truths, which is power is only going to become more expensive. Bill Gates talks about it in his book, uh, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. It's basically a book about power, a book about how we create power at what he calls the green premium. Uh, But that's just going to be sustainable for environmentally sustainable for our planet to come. And that power is going to be more expensive. Until then, they have to rely on cheap power. Well, where's the cheap power coming from? The cheap power is coming from coal and natural gas. So all the power that they are consuming, they only need power and people. Well, all the power that they are consuming is in essence, dirty power, right? And they're Mm. consuming a lot of it. These fully enclosed controlled environment ag platforms are consuming power to the level of data centers. So you peel all that back and then you really ask from an environmental and an economic sustainable question, hey, does this story really stand up? Does this narrative really stand up? And the answer is no. But it's only when you can ask that question honestly, be intellectually honest about the answer to those questions of, is this economically sustainable? And is this really environmentally sustainable? Do you get really good questions that ought to be asked in the industry and some really hard answers? I think there's a good lesson there, which is being able to push back on the narrative or the story that you're told with searching questions principle I really like from Napoleon. He has this quote where he says, why and how are such useful words, you can never say them enough. And it's this idea that when when you take a, a concept or an idea, just pushing back on it and saying, but how is that going to work? Okay, so we need people and power. How many people? How much power? And being able to just get to the root cause of someone's argument and not take what they have at face value. If you are true to your core mission, and your core mission can make it through that filter of honest questions of yourself and of your company, your company is going to come out better for it. And I'll give you the example in ours. Our mission was to change the way that we farm food and that we feed people. And we wanted to do it in such a way that was economically viable, but we also wanted to benefit and bless the community and culture around us. For us, then we had to figure out a way, and we being our inventors, Jacques and Eugene Van Buren, they had to invent a way, and they wanted to invent a way that one, both grew produce nutritiously and cost efficiently because they came from South Africa and that's where they originated the technology before we patented here in the US. And two, they actually wanted to employ people. You have to solve for those two things. So fast forward now, as we talk about how we want to run this company from a redemptive framework, a redemptive approach, we want to bless not just our employees, but also the community around us. And we do that by employing them, right? Automation for automation's sake doesn't allow for that. We love the fact that one of our greenhouses is profitable enough and it's included in our 
PL that we employ up to 30 people in an acre and a half greenhouse. And we're still highly profitable. Not a lot of people can say that. And because their mission is all about technology and efficiency, then they throw a bunch of automation in there, which is basically moving flat tray hydroponic farming or, or whatnot. And okay, that's automation and that's taking people out of the equation. They have to do that because their operating expenses are so high, they can't afford to employ 30 people. They just can't do it. So for us, our mission was totally in line with employing people, being environmentally sustainable, but also making a profit. When you can build your company around that, that's true to your mission, those hard questions will come and we can answer them. And it's because we've thought through that, we've done the intellectual exercise and we're not trying to spin answers. We're integrating those hard questions into how we build our company. I think there's a good parallel here as well between the rap songs that stay on your playlist and the ones that go, which is the ones that stay are the, the ones with real quality. They're viable in the market for a lot of time, but the commercially popular ones are not sustainable. They're built around a certain zeitgeist or a certain flavor of the month. And these kind of narratives are, are very flavor of the month-esque as well. You said a, a phrase there, which I'd like to come back to, which is this redemptive style of leadership or this redemptive style of approaching your company. What exactly do you mean by that? There's a group out of New York City called Praxis Labs, of which uh, I'm associated with. And the framework or the thought around Praxis is one of what we call a redemptive framework. So what you normally see out there is what we call uh, exploitative companies. And exploitative companies are one where the leaders eat first, the employees are treated unfairly, and then culture and society is a net negative because this company exists. Maybe they produce something that's a consumable good, but then their employment practices, their environmental practices, all that are negatives to culture and society. Or maybe even the byproduct of that consumable is a negative to society. There are some companies that we call are ethical. And ethical companies are ones where the leaders eat alongside their employees, the employees are treated fairly, and culture and society are either a net neutral or even advanced. Culture is advanced because of these companies exist. And those ethical companies are absolutely to be applauded and lauded and supported. There's a third type of company that exists though, and that is a redemptive company. And it's what we strive to be. It's where leaders eat last. We're sacrificial in our leadership our employees are not just treated fairly, they're treated generously and they're blessed. And the last is uh, society and culture around the company, uh, where the company footprint is, is not just advanced, but it's renewed and redeemed. There's a redemptive aspect to it. That's what we're trying to do with Eden Green and Praxis is trying to espouse that, not just for ESG-friendly companies like us, but also for professional service organizations, right? For car washes, for nonprofits. It's a new, it's a third way of looking at companies and how they're built. We just have the opportunity to build it from scratch and the puzzle pieces are all there that, uh, that it's a, just a natural fit to build a redemptive company and with a redemptive mission. So first of all, we have this idea that leaders eat last. So this is where the compensation and the benefit would make sure all the employees are, are covered first and then the leaders take their cut. It's reinvesting back into the business. Employees treated generously and are, and are blessed. Salary is one aspect of that, but I'm sure there's a lot more to it. So how would a redemptive company treat their employees that a merely ethical company would not? It differs from company to company. All I can tell you is what we're trying to do here at Eden Green, which is obviously from a financial perspective, we're trying to pay them above market rates, whether it's hourly or salary, right? We're trying to pay them competitively. But also in that, there are some operational things that we are trying to be mindful of. So for instance, 
we have greenhouses. Well, here in Texas, greenhouses get very, very hot in the summertime. So instead of having a static schedule of nine to five or of eight to four, or whatever it is with 30 minutes for lunch, really try to stagger that schedule. So in the summer, they come in at six, but then they leave at two. And it they leave before the hottest time, before it really, really starts to get unbearably hot in the greenhouse, which is, by the way, greenhouses obviously are made for plants, not for humans. And we treat it as such. And, and our technology is such that also to the plant spots are very mild temperature relative, but then the rest of the greenhouse is actually is hotter. We're trying to structure our employee schedules around what's good for them to still get the job done. Plants are going to grow whenever, but you know, in terms of seeding and harvesting uh, and packing and processing, when is the best time for them to just not be in the greenhouse? We also try, you know, from an hourly, but also on a salaried perspective, my goal, and it was in the last company that I owned, we did not work on weekends. I myself as the CEO will not email people past 7 p.m. and I won't email people before 7 a.m. If I do, they know they don't have to respond, but I try not to, and here's why. As a leader, you may or may not be aware of this. It may be so implicit in your mind that you don't even think about this if someone above you emails you, but when someone emails you, regardless of the time, your natural inclination is to be obligated to respond, right? So if you've got a leader who's never stated, I don't want you to email me back, but even if they did, if you got an email at 9 p.m. at night, what are you going to do? You're going to have the pressure to feel the need to respond at 9.30 or 9.15 or whenever that is. So as a leader, ethically, I would just tell them, hey, don't email me back. But from a redemptive standpoint, what if I led by example? One, what if I didn't email them at all between those times? Or two, what if I wasn't even on email myself, right? I'm trying to take care of myself, my well-being, my mental well-being. I've got to have stamina and mental acuity in order to operate this business during the day. So I need to take care of myself. So if I top down say, hey, I'm trying to have mental and, uh, and, and emotional wellness and have a good family life. I can't then say, I want all this, but I'm still going to demand or at least implicitly say, you need to respond to me. Instead, I'm going to say, you know what? If I want that for myself, why would I not want that for my employees? So then I'm not going to email them or interact with them from seven to seven. Obviously, when you're running a high speed business, high growth, tech-related company, things happen. But as a rule, rather than as an exception, I try not to work in those hours. Or if I do, I don't interact with my employees because I know I know they'll be obligated to respond. There's a, a great lesson there, which is you have to make this explicit. Unless you state the rules of your communication, people are going to default to responding as soon as possible. And that's the job of the leader to ultimately say and to share. What you're sharing reminds me of something I went through a couple of weeks ago, which was coming down with COVID-19. And I had to tell my team that my next week's plans were completely cleared. I was going to have to take time off and, and rest and work. And I was faced with a decision at that point. And I, I had to think it through, which was, do I want to power through this and pretend like there's nothing wrong here? But then I thought, well, actually, what would I expect if my team, if any of my team caught COVID? I would definitely expect them to take time off. I'd expect them to rest. I would say, don't do any work. And so then I thought to myself, well, why aren't you applying the same principles to yourself? If the team are there to be restored and deserve that time off, then you deserve that as well. And so that's what I did. I ended up taking that time off. But if we're not intentional with setting those rules, and I like this framing you use of saying that there are rules as a baseline, but there are exceptions within that. So being intentional with saying, these are the rules that we try and stick to, 
but we are not rigid enough to be slaves to them. And if something does come up, then we're able to be dynamic and we're able to understand that we put the needs of the team first before the needs of ourselves. The intentionality that you mentioned is absolutely critical, you know, and that applies to family life too. I tell folks all the time, hey, most of the folks who are listening on this podcast have a one-year plan, a five-year plan for their business. Maybe they have quarterly, right? They, they have regularly, regularly scheduled meetings and calls to determine the strategy and the tactics of their business. Very intentional about that. My challenge is how many of those people have the same intentionality, regularly scheduled planning and strategy on how they want their family to look like? How many of them have regularly scheduled planning and meeting with their counselor, their therapist, their doctor, about how they want their health to look like in five years, in a year? How many are looking at their nutrition the same way? How are they looking at their exercise the same way? How many of them are looking at their time off in the same way? That is as critical, if not more critical to a leader, the higher up you get in terms of leadership responsibilities, the more that you need to take a look at those things, not only for your, your mental well-being and your emotional well-being, physical well-being, but also for your family too, your partners, your kiddos, those who are close around you. As you get higher up in responsibility, the conventional wisdom is, well, I just have to spend less time with them. Well, if you have that intentionality from the get-go, you're going to slot them in in terms of priority, and hopefully your, your prioritization is, is a healthy one, right? Mm. Uh, so all to say is that the intentionality is, is a really big piece for yourself and then for your employees. Uh, and then the explicit communication is also probably the, the highest and best use and value of a leader's time is explicit, clear, concise communication. What makes that the top spot for you? As a CEO, the single biggest responsibility that no one else in the organization can do is integrate the outside with the inside. No one else in the organization has the outside perspective, whether it's the market, whether it's analysts, whether it's industries, you know, industry specialists, whether it's the consumer, consumer trends, market trends, no one has a view of that outside like the CEO does. Maybe the marketer does, maybe the sales guy does, but at the end of the day, you have the overview that no one else has because you're putting all the marketing and the sales and the product management, customer service, customer success, all into a comprehensive vision. Likewise, on the inside, no one has an overview of the business like the CEO. The CFOs focused on financials, COOs operate, you know, focusing on day-to-day ops and making sure things don't fall through the cracks and on organizational efficiency and optimization. Again, sales and marketing, they're focused on their thing. You know, the folks down on the line, they're focused on planting good plants, on harvesting and packing with cleanliness and food safety. No one else is taking a look at that overall perspective of the organization like the CEO. So when the CEO has the best view of the outside and the best view of the inside, they're the only persons that can communicate between the two to make sure that the markets clearly understand what is going on with the company, not just vision and mission, but also operations. And then inside, they're the only person that can communicate to the employees and to the folks, quote unquote, on the ship, where we're going, why we're going there why you're working so hard right now, why it's full steam ahead, or why we're sitting for a bit. That is the part and parcel that is the job of the CEO, the job. And so as you go downstream to folks below the CEO, to you know, below them, below them, below them, all of those leaders downstream need to be able to communicate their portion what they see in their limited view from the out to the outside with their view of the inside. If you want to be a successful leader coming up the ranks, you will learn that on a very basic, 
even on an analyst level or on a production level. And as you move up into managers roles, you will see more and more how important that is to both those above you and below you. And the better you can do that, the quicker you are going to rise up in the ranks uh, in your professional career. So this really seems here that the CEO is a distributor of information. So they're taking these inputs which come from the outside, they're taking these inputs which come from the inside, and they're building or shaping this very elegant puzzle so the employees understand one side of it and the market, their consumers, third parties understand the other side of it. Let's take both of these. I think this is a really interesting analogy, the, the outside and, and the inside. So if you're to start synthesizing information from the outside and, and the inside, what are those key inputs that you're going to be returning to on a regular basis to make sure you're getting the best high resolution overview that you can of both sides? You mentioned the word synthesis, and I think that's a really important concept to understand and then to, to integrate into your skill sets, if you will. The synthesis of information is there's two parts to it. One is just the input of information. So you've got to know the right things to read on a daily basis. So there's a blog post on my personal blog on why I read, what I read, when I read. And it you know, basically boiled down to tweets and social media provide about, call it a day or two or three maybe, of vision forecasting for me. Articles, news articles, short form articles provide about a week maybe more, you know, week to two weeks of information that I can use to cast vision for the company and to, to guide direction. Uh, long form articles, long magazine articles, whether it's the Atlantic or longer pieces in the New York Times, uh, but really mostly Atlanta, the, the, the magazine type deals. Those provide a month, maybe two months, three months of view. And then you've got research papers in white papers that provide about six months to a year view. Just to clarify, when you're saying a view to forecast your vision, what exactly does that metric of time represent? That represents like how I use that information to project where we're going to be as a company in six months. What type of projections should we be aiming for? What places in the market do we need to enter? What places into the market do we need to pull back from? Where do we have the most competitors? Where is there greenfield opportunities, right? Where are there expansion opportunities? Where are there industry, technology, ag trends that we see, oh man, we need to capitalize on those or we can't miss out on those or yeah, those are ephemeral. Those will be gone in six months. Those are the type of things that I look at my filter when I read this type of articles or watch these videos. I would throw videos in there, you know, documentaries and whatnot, and sort of that, call it six months to a year type timeframe. Books are the last tier, or I'd say the top tier. Books provide me with the most comprehensive view, maybe from short-term, but mostly for long-term trends and long-term vision of where I think the company needs to be. And so as a CEO, conventional wisdom say, and we've had recent leaders, national, corporate, otherwise, who love tweets. They love reading them. They love pushing it out there. But what it ends up resulting is a lot of short-term decisions, a lot of short-term reactions, a lot of short-term thinking. It's only when you get to those longer ones that you get to have cast more vision, that you have more of a, a synthesis, back to that word, uh, be able to synthesize over an amount of time what needs to happen for your company, what needs to happen for your organization. So as a CEO, I spend my most time in books and I spend my least time on social media because that's what's in most important to me, right? So you have to align those with your overall job responsibility and your overall mission, everything has to be intentional about how you're spending your time. And for me, that even comes down to information consumption. So then that goes back into your synthesis question. So there's the input and then there's the actual time to synthesize and then produce meaningful 
information for action. I have a bias towards action. So my goal is to synthesize as quickly as I can to make a, an educated decision, knowing that, uh, and I came from, uh, from the government background and, and uh, as an analyst, you're never going to have 100% confidence in your decision. There's always some level of risk that you're taking when you make a decision based on information. No piece of information you know, in that world, no piece of intelligence provides 100% confidence. It's always on a risk ratio or risk matrix. Likewise, you know, when you're synthesizing information, you've just got to make decisions. Some, some are real time, some you've got a little bit of time. So as a, as a leader, then, if I'm prioritizing the highest and best use of my time, which is communicating, in order to communicate outside and inside, I've got to be able to synthesize information. So in order to synthesize information, I have to, one, create time for inputs and have to create time for thinking. So in my logic train that I just laid out, my tasks that are most important, not the most urgent, but the most important are reading and thinking. Mm. So it looks weird from the outside in because you think a CEO should be just running around with their head cut off. And mm-hmm. yes, my schedule is such that I'm just going back to back meetings, right? Sometimes, but there are large portions of my schedule that I've told, instructed my team and not just an, an assistant, but my whole team, I need to block out time for this. And if it's at night, it's at night, right? That's where I say, okay, maybe I read at night and that's my own sacrifice, right? So mm-hmm. leaders eat last. Well, during the day, you all get a piece of me, but at night, it's my time to think. And if I have to sacrifice sleep because of it, I do so. But I try not to do it, right? Again, mental health. It's this whole equation that we've been talking yeah, about, right. this calculus, right? Mm-hmm. But during the day, I will have large blocks of time where I'm either thinking or reading or thinking while I'm reading or just staring out the window and trying to synthesize all the information I just read on all of those sources that are prioritized but synthesizing that into how I communicate. It comes out in the forms of talking points. Hey, when this analyst asks you this or this banker asks you this, how are you going to respond? Well, if I'm using and synthesizing that information correctly, my response will be to them one that is coherent, that is succinct, that's explicit, and that is informed by market and industry trends accurately. Mm. That goes back to my overall mission, which is integrating the inside with the outside. Yeah, I can tell them, right? Yeah. That whole communication and integration piece comes through synthesizing information. The whole synthesizing information piece comes through time, reading and thinking. So then you have to prioritize the thinking time and you have to prioritize what you're reading. Man, there's so many interesting threads to jump off of that. Um, one is a, is a quick comment, which is, I think you could maybe add a layer to your reading, to your books uh, layer of how lo- their longevity, which is to add a Lindy effect timer. So the Lindy effect, for those who don't know, is this idea that when a book, or not a book, but when something was created, is directly proportional to how long that thing is going to last. So if we take Stoicism created by Zeno in ancient Greece, Stoicism has been around for thousands of years. And so Stoicism, if we, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's 2,500 years. I don't know, some historians will attack me for that, but it's, it's around that. That gives Stoicism a Lindy effect of 2,500 years. Now, if we compare that to a book that was written in 2020, that just has a Lindy effect of one year recording this in July 2021. So there's kind of a, there's an interesting balance between them. But something else, so it's interesting, something I've been thinking about recently is that, so I'm a big fan of journaling as a way to capture thoughts and retrace the corridors of your growth in from previous years. And something that um, I was discussing with my housemate recently is that rather than just writing, instead, it's better to have these bursts of writing, which are inspired by concentrated thinking. So instead of just write, 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 it's think, then write, then think, then write. And I think what you're talking about here is kind of this three-part loop of 
consuming information to get the inputs. That's where you have to start thinking that through, synthesizing it, and then finally having some output. And the output, that concentration is the result of clear thinking, clear writing equals clear thinking. So it's just this consistent loop that, coming back to your point, that the CEO is constantly doing so they can integrate the outside with the inside. You're absolutely correct. And I think it's why you see a lot of former CEOs end up writing books, right? They finally have the chance to think and pass through the filter what stood the test of time in their own career, and then just try to pass that wisdom on to others. And to your point, the books that I read, whether it's the Bible, whether it's Marcus Aurelius, whether it's things by St. Augustine, those are all very much classics. And they're classics, not just because of the time, but because of the Lindy effect, which is time plus validity, right? Filtering through the ages, the things that end up on bookshelves decade after decade after decade are the ones that made the test of time, cut it, right? So mm -hmm. absolutely agree with what you're saying. The funny thing is if you if you talk to a, an avid reader, they will read the same book over and over again. They always have their favorite book. And it's not just the favorite books aren't just the one that they've read once. They've read, probably read them five or six times. For me, that's Neil Stevenson, Cryptonomicon oh, nice. is my absolute favorite book, right? Cool. Crypto, I've okay. probably read Cryptonomicon, I don't know, nine times, 10 times. I mean, it's it, to me, there's a bit of freshness every time with the story, but there's so many good insights into technology, insights into relationships, insights into legacy uh, mm. that exists in his books. I love reading them over and over again. And to me, that's the Lindy effect of one author who I think is going to be on the good end and the good receiving end of the Lindy effect 30 or 40 years from now is, is that guy. Um, Ryan Holiday mm. is another one. He's wrote a book on ego is the enemy and he's a huge fan of uh, stoicism and I think his books are, are going to be favorable over the course of time as well. So the, the interesting thing for people who don't know, Neil Stevenson is a sci-fi writer and Cryptonomicon was actually the required reading for everybody who joined PayPal. The PayPal mafia are this group that went on to create Tesla, SpaceX, YouTube, Yammer, LinkedIn, a couple of other huge companies. So Elon Musk was there, Peter Thiel was there, Chad Hurley was there. And you had to read Cryptonomicon in order to get there. So they became this self-selecting group of, of nerds. And um, yeah, Neil Stevenson's a great writer. It's funny you, you mentioned him, Eddie. I just started rereading Snow Crash for the first time. Oh yeah, um, fantastic. Last week. Yeah, it's, uh, so it's, I, I did not know that about Cryptonomicon and the mm. PayPal Mafia. That is, wow. It's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating too. I, I kind of feel good now. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, well, it gets into something interesting, which is like the, the self-selected for a very particular type of nerd. You had to be very interested in this alternative form of currency, such to the point that you invested in this heavy book to read it. And I think this, this transitions us nicely to our final segment of today, which is the DNA of Eden Green. And something I was really struck by the last time we spoke was that you shared that you're not just investing in your employees for this chapter, for working with you at Eden Green, but you proactively think about their next chapter and you ask them this question, where do you see yourselves in, in 12 to 18 months? So there's this kind of intentional growth within the company, but then there's also what they're going to potentially do after the company. And so what I'd be interested in in understanding is taking that, that first question, why is that such an important question to you to ask your employees consistently and to have a vision for where they want to go in the company? I ask that of the employees in the company because it puts them in a posture that I am proactively asking them to be in. It puts them in a posture of thinking ahead most employers have no interest, they have nominal interest in how their employees grow. They may say so, they may have a professional development track, right? And that's, that's good and we have that as well. But as an employer and as a leader, 
I want them to have a continual posture of like, okay, what's next? All right, what's next? Because it's in the DNA of our company to think about what's next. We're an innovative ag tech company. We have to think about what's next. So even in what they're learning and where they want to be, I just want them to have that posture. I think it's healthy for them. And I think it helps their overall professional career if they have that posture going forward. Uh, So to ask that question proactively is a benefit to them, whatever answer they give. The other thing is how we hire and how we see people off, honestly. We try to hire really high responsibility, high autonomy people. And when you hire high responsibility, high autonomy, you are by nature hiring really, really highly motivated individuals, highly motivated about their career. They may have metrics that matter to them. And to that, then I say, okay, if we're, if we're hiring some really high capacity people, then I only have two options. They're either going to stay or they're going to leave. That's really it. There is no other option. So I can either spin my wheels and spend time trying to convince them to stay from day one, or I can empower them, put them in line with high growth. And if they grow with us, then fantastic. I know I've set up a good culture. I know that our team is poised for success. I know that the company, not just me, but everyone below me, are leaders of integrity. They want the best for their employees uh, and their, you know, the, the folks under them, their, their reports, direct reports. And so then I know that we have a good culture. And if they want to leave that culture, then they must in their minds have a better option somewhere out there. And if they want to leave, I'm not going to argue it. So if someone comes to me and say, hey, I'm looking at this role or I'm giving my two weeks notice or whatever, which by the way, in our companies, there's very, very low attrition, which is phenomenal for a company that is a large portion production, right? Hourly workers with benefits. We've had very low attrition compared to the industry. And I think it's because of the culture uh, that we've had of just caring for them. But when someone comes to me and they say they want to leave, I don't even argue with them. I want to know why they left, why they're leaving, right? I want to know how we can improve from their point of view, and I'll take it with a grain of salt. I want to know if they'll let me know where they're going to. I want to know how we can be more competitive next time, but I'm not interested in actually keeping them on. If you've gone to the lengths you've gone to to go look for another job and then accept it or even consider it, then that tells me you've outgrown this position or you've taken the company for granted, or you just don't see eye to eye on the vision and the mission. And then, and then you ought to be on your way. While that's disappointing at the end of the day, it's, it is what it is, but what can I do? Well, I can make sure whatever they take on to that next position, they have as much DNA of our company in them that they take there whether it's a DNA of high autonomy, high responsibility, whether it's a DNA to excellence and diligence, whether it's a DNA of favorable work-life balance, right? I hope they go to that next company and they say, hey, listen, in my last company, I didn't work on the weekends or I didn't email my boss from seven to seven. I don't plan to here. Mm -hmm. That's either going to come as a shock to that next company or they're going to be like, Hey, that's a great idea. Yeah. Great. So the, the DNA and guess what? They're all going to attribute it back to Eden green. I like that. And in my last company, we had boomerang employees. We had folks who would leave because they got a better job offer. It was more money. They didn't see what that really, the cost benefit analysis to that. Right. Mm -hmm. They didn't see it three months later. Like, Hey, this is not at all what I envision. Can I come back? A lot of times we wow. have to say, no, the position's filled, right? It, it's not out of spite. It literally is like, we filled it because we got a pool of applicants oh, that are waiting to come work here. It's what we, we happened in, our, in my last company. It's called BuzzShift. It's what's happening here. We are creating a pool of applicants. That are, they're inbound for the most part. That our reputation as not just an innovative company, but a great place to work where employees are really cared for 
and that they're going to grow in terms of education and professional development, people want to come work here. That is the aroma I want my companies to have. And it can Mm. only be done if you start with true company values. And to me, those company values have to be redemptive. I think that is an excellent place for us to leave things today. I, I will say one final comment, which is I love your use of the word aroma at the end then. I think um, we spend so much of our lives consuming visual information that just to think about the the fragrance of our company and taking time to smell the roses when the roses are your people, I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing to say. Um, Eddie, this has been a lot of fun. If our audience wants to keep up with you, they want to keep up with your ideas, where's the best place to follow you online? Edengreen.com and then uh, Eden Green Tech on all the social handles. Uh, my personal one is is just Eddie Badrina on Twitter, which I'm rarely on Instagram, LinkedIn. It's just Eddie Badrina. And you mentioned you've got a personal website with a blog as well. Where can people find that? Badrina.com. I try to summarize a lot of my thoughts. Like you said, I'll do it in bursts of writing. So it's not necessarily consistent, but I'll do bursts of writing and it's just on Badrina.com. Fantastic. Eddie, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you for having me. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees, heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.